Welcome back to Logos-ish. This is our third episode of season two. We are so excited to be here. We are joined today by Pastor Rusty Krim and Pastor Catherine Krim and their daughter, Tansy, whose first podcast is today. And we are also joined by Pastor Shannon Mullen, again, back by popular demand of the hosts on this podcast. We have all of our regular hosts today, except Garrett, who couldn't be bothered to show up, and we're going to hassle him for it until we're all dead. Until that time, though, we are going to be talking about uh, redemptive violence. We're going to be talking about comic books. We're going to have a really great conversation for you today. But I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to pause the podcast right now and like, subscribe, and share if you are having a good time as of yet, or if you've enjoyed any of our previous podcast episodes. It really does help. And if you leave us a review, especially those five-star reviews, which we really covet, we will be forever indebted to you in some way, shape, or form. I'll swear a life debt to you, whatever that means. I'll leave it up to your interpretation. But Brian's here, Sarah's here, and our guests are here. Guests, how about you introduce yourselves to us today? That's you guys. Okay. So uh, I'm Rusty Krim, and I'm the pastor of Lane United Methodist Church in Lane, South Carolina, uh, which you've not heard of. And I'm also the director of music and connectional ministries at King Street United Methodist Church uh, in King Street, South Carolina, which you probably also have not heard of. And I... Uh, and the father to Tansy, who's right here. She is two days short of two months old today. So she uh, she's just hanging out with us. But I uh, can't see because it's audio. But I've got my Batman Dad T-shirt. <laughs> my my real my only real qualification uh, for talking about any of this is that last year for my birthday, Catherine got me uh, a cameo from Kevin Conroy, uh, where he called me a Batman dad. So that means something. In case anyone doesn't know, Kevin Conroy uh, was the longtime 90s and early 2000s voice of Bruce Wayne, AKA Batman. He is the Batman. Agreed, agreed. So, and I'm Catherine Krim. I am the pastor of King Street United Methodist Church, which as Rusty just told you, you probably have never heard of. So we are in King Street, South Carolina, which is a population of about 3,000. We are an hour and a half from everywhere. everywhere and <laughs> takes us about 30 minutes to get to Walmart. So we just are living our lives in this tiny town. Um, I married Rusty and as an elder in South Carolina, with my established roots, convinced him to move from Louisville, Kentucky to the middle of nowhere. And my only qualification for being on here today, I feel like, is that I married a comic book nerd (laughs) and have been able to be really supportive of that. I watched all the Marvel movies in one summer, the first summer we were dating, I think. Mm -hmm. And yeah, got that Kevin, Kevin Conroy cameo. It was four and a half minutes long. It was so in long. In case you ever want to gift it to someone. So worth the money. Yes. Yeah. So that's Well, thank me. you guys. We're really excited to have you on today. We're going to have a lot of fun. And 
I do have to say hashtag not my Batman. Shocker. Who's Spoilers. We'll get into this later, I'm sure. Okay. But I... it's so great to have everybody on. We... <laughs> Brian is just shaking his head. Rusty is shaking his head. <laughs> well, anyways, let's get into our conversation today. This conversation we just got done discussing is all Shannon's fault, so he's going to explain exactly what we're going to be talking <laughs> about today. But, you know, during our first podcast episode ever, we were sitting around afterwards talking to Shannon and talking about atonement theory, which was the topic of our first episode and talking in particular about redemptive violence in our love of comic books and popular culture. So we figured we'd just start talking and see where the wind takes us. So Shannon, what do you think today is going to be about? Oh, well, I mean, I know what it's going to be about because every conversation I'm in ends up being about the same thing. It's about the myth of redemptive violence. We we are thoroughly steeped in this idea culturally and probably in our human roots with this idea that the way to peace is through force and uh, conflict and violence. And I think that the primary, one of the primary root messages of the gospel is that that is never the way to come to true peace. So so that's what we're going to end up talking about, because that's the only thing I ever talk about. <laughs> so how does this idea relate to comic books? Is there an overall um, theology of uh, redemptive violence in comic books? Well, let me say the reason that we're talking about this and the reason I brought the topic up when we were chatting before is that I'll uh, throw out props to my uh, good friend, Susan Wright, um, whom I met through an organization called Theology and Peace many, many years ago. And uh, we've both been uh, a part of that organization, along with a lot of other people across the country. And, um, and we meet to talk about reclaiming a theology, which is devoid of force and violence and coercion and wrathful gods. Uh, who have to uh, punish people for their sin. And so one of the conferences one year, um, Sue did a presentation. So that's why I'm shouting out to her because she uh, she got me started thinking about this. But uh, noting that the comic books seem to be struggling with this question, is violence redemptive? And uh, I'll, I'll uh, just fess up and say, I haven't read a lot of comic books, a few as a child, but I've never really uh, subscribed to comic books. But of course, I'm a huge fan of the of uh, comic book movies. And um, we don't have to get into a fight today about DC movies versus uh, Marvel movies. But uh, it's it's not a fight. No, there's no fight. So um, yeah. I, we all know which one are the best. But uh, I watch all of them. Doesn't matter. I don't, I'm not one of those people that refuses to watch uh, I watch all of them and I enjoy all of them, even though some are better. But in any case, particularly I've noticed in the uh, the whole Marvel comics universe, the the Marvel universe uh, movies that that there's there's been a struggle, a theme pervasive through many, not all maybe, but most of the movies of wrestling with that idea of, you know, how do we use this power? And does violence actually bring about transformation? Does it actually bring peace? Uh, or does it just temporarily tamp down violence? 
So uh, can violence defeat violence? That's the question that I think they're wrestling with. And I'm sure we'll get into that more. And, and part of the reason this is fascinating to me is because I think it's fascinating that a corporation that's making movies to entertain people and, of course, to make profit, primarily to make profit, is wrestling with ideas that are motivated by the gospel at work in our culture and some, in some ways are wrestling with those ideas more than the church. That's a shocker to me. And it's fascinating to me to see popular culture wrestling with the ideas that the church probably ought to be wrestling with. How's that for an intro? It's pretty solid. I think it's interesting we're already, there's only, we're only a couple minutes in and we're already getting into the DC Marvel thing. Uh, <laughs> because here's the thing, right? So I'm a DC kid, right? Like when I got home from school in the afternoons, Batman the Animated Series was my babysitter until until my mom got home, right? And and so I grew up that way. And it's it's interesting you bring up that that they're dealing that the Marvel is dealing with that because we'll I, I assume we'll get into start to get into the not my Batman thing at this point, but. The the first few movies of the DC, whatever they're calling it, you know, the Man of Steel, the Zack Snyder movies, basically, were all kind of influenced, or I won't say Man of Steel, because I actually like Man of Steel a lot, but Batman vs. Superman took a lot, a lot of cues from uh, the death of Superman and from the Dark Knight Returns. But in the Dark Knight Returns, run from the 80s is famously like a old Batman comes out of retirement and beats the bejesus out of a bunch of criminals because Gotham has gotten worse. And so because Gotham has gotten worse, he fights again. And then he fights Superman and, and, and all this. And in my humble opinion, that's sort of where the Marvel movies do, like you talked about, Shan, do a better job of talking about this is because Zack Snyder is taking his cues from these runs that a lot of people really enjoy. I don't enjoy so much that are all about bigger and stronger and, you know, all about sort of fight harder and punch harder. Whereas Marvel is sort of taking this approach of because they have this more interconnected universe, everything matters. And so when you see an Avengers age of Ultron, you know, they, basically demolish this whole city that has repercussions down down the line where it uh doesn't in in, in the other ones so somebody has a facebook message uh, that was that was me i got a text message sorry did you not hear the message about silencing your cell phone before the feature film he um got a new computer for christmas it's true learning. How do I, how do I do that? I will fix it. Okay. Don't let him give you a hard time. So, so Rusty, I, I like your point, especially about um, the, what the, the different comic book runs and what the movies are based on. Uh, when we were starting to talk about 
today in particular in today's topic, I could not help but think about Kingdom Come oh, in sure. particular as a graphic novel and, you know, a really, really fantastic Alex Ross. Uh, story. But the central, you know, arc of the story is, you know, the nature of violence and what it can achieve, right? You know, the issue is Superman comes out of retirement in order to stop all of these people who call themselves superheroes or heroes of some kind and all of these guys are running around and they're like they're killing their villains and they're they're messing stuff up and they're doing all of this stuff and they're really just sort of screwing up the way the world works and so superman winds up having to sort of become a counter to this you know new generation of superheroes that have graduated into kind of a, a darker sort of more gritty kind of reality from the sort of golden age dc picture of a superhero and so it, it actually works out as a sort of story about varying philosophies and how we choose to depict our um, various kinds of mythological figures and what that says about us well, and that, and it's a, and it's a deconstruction, right? Which is basically what Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman were, were deconstructions of characters that Zack Snyder thought this, I don't, I didn't mean to start this by, you know, dumping all over Zack Snyder, but he's a big boy. It, he's deconstructing characters that he assumes everybody is familiar with at a time in which we probably, that's why I think the first Wonder Woman and why Aquaman and Shazam all did so much better is because they were movies that were really looking at this redemptive violence thing. Like, like Wonder Woman said, and it sounded like, like if you were to just read the words on the page, they sound like they come out of, you know, a fifth grade, you know, a board book that I would read to Tansy, you know, now I know that love is all that can save the world. But when you go through that whole movie and see the arc, you see, oh, yeah, like, no, that makes sense. And Aquaman ends the first movie by not killing his brother, but, you know, by putting him putting him away and being like, when you're ready, let's talk. And so, they're, you know, they're trying to show a certain strength in that holding back and not retaliating eye for eye. To be fair to Zack Snyder, though, I mean, he did say if your moms share the same first name, you'll eventually get along, right? Save Martha! <laughs> <laughs> has to be the lowest point of any kind of cinematic universe that when that's mom, the reason why they don't kill each other why does he call his mom martha <laughs> <laughs> why wouldn't he be like save my mom <laughs> so <laughs> let me jump in here after referencing that and and say that i am one of the few people who actually really loves uh zach snyder's movies <laughs> Uh, and seem to be in the minority for almost every conversation about what the quality of a superhero movie is. So go figure. I will. I will say, I do enjoy Man of Steel. Every time I watch it, I like it a little bit more. And there are a, a lot of parts in Bat. I think Batman versus Superman is three really good movies. But when you cram them all together, they they don't. A plus B plus C equals question. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask a question? Yeah, go ahead, Shannon. I mean, I'm I'm the guest. I'm supposed to answer questions, but I'm going to ask one. So here's what, what I'm wondering. Do the creators of these stories know that they're wrestling with the 
question of redemptive violence? Or is this just a reflection of the culture? I mean, I guess they know that. Do they know that they're wrestling with the gospel? I'm just curious what others think. But, you know, let me give a very brief, um, what was pointed out to me is that in the, when when uh, Iron Man was created, that character uh, was created as an anti-hippie, anti-anti-Vietnam character because Stan Lee didn't like the protests against Vietnam. And he created a character that made weapons for the U.S. government and uh, was pro-military, pro-America, worked with government to defeat evil and uh, with violence uh, intentionally. And it was anti-peacenik. As though Captain America wasn't enough. Right, exactly. So then, but over time in the comics, over many years, uh, the character developed and eventually Tony Stark renounced weapon making and so forth. But in the movies, that whole transition from weapon maker to renouncer of weapons because they destroy everybody, not just your enemies, uh, and they don't lead to actual peace. They lead to collateral damage. That like transition happens in the very first Iron Man movie, like in the first half of the first movie. So like clearly they decided that arc of Iron Man is what they wanted to wrestle with. But then in that movie, you know, there's a a place where they advance. uh, I think it's the second movie. In any case, they're advancing the storyline quickly by flashing up a bunch of images of newspapers instead of telling stories. So they're like, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened with newspaper pictures. And it's like, you know, Tony Stark wants to save the world. And then when he flies, how does he fly? Like his arms are stretched out on the cross. I'm like, is this intentional or is this just like, because of the good news of uh, of peace and non-retaliation and forgiveness and reconciliation is is pervading the culture and they're trying to wrestle with it or what? Or is or is somebody really want to say Tony's following Jesus through this arc of being selfish and a jerk and not caring about anybody else into eventually caring, you know, by the final movie more than anything about his family and the world and his friends. I mean, the movies are like I said, they're following they're sort of following a, a larger arc and so they're building off of each other but the comics kind of like any other pop culture are products of their time and so like you know in the beginning you know in 30 what was it 38 when the first action comics came out you know superman was a circus strongman who could jump real high you know he didn't he couldn't fly he didn't have like the lead like couldn't do the lead thing like you know, and they start, they all kind of started off in the golden age as sort of these larger than life symbols who stood for, you know, in the, in the first Superman movie says, I'm here to fight for truth, justice in the American way, which woof did that not age, you know, but there's sort of this sincerity to them. And as you get into like the eighties, it's a very different period. And so to keep people interested, you have to sort of continually reinvent and so the 80s is when you get into all the deconstruction where you're where you're looking at dark knight returns you're looking at uh, watchmen you're looking at daredevil you know the man with no fear you're looking at all these different runs that sort of took these characters and sort of kind of went okay well what if 
it was what if they're themselves but they have bigger muscles and they're angrier basically and then you get into you get into the 90s and you know later and stuff and you know it softens up and i think now we're in a period where i think people creators are wrestling like very intentionally with those questions you know i uh I'm behind on Arrow, uh, on all those CWDC shows, but arguably the best season of Arrow of any of those shows is the second season where the entire season revolves around Oliver Queen dealing with this question of, you know, Deathstroke is coming into his life and just very systematically tearing it apart. He, you know, spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen that season, but, you know, he kills his mom, he kills his, you know, all these people, he takes away all his money, he does all this stuff. And Oliver is wrestling with the question of, I beat him once and the only reason he's still around is because I didn't kill him the first time. So do I kill him now and just end it? Or do I take the high road? And he ends up taking the high road, you know, which Deathstroke, you know, comes back in later seasons. But I think people do wrestle with that very, very intentionally, at least at least nowadays. Well, you know, I hearing that and in hearing the references back to several of the sort of great graphic novels from the 80s onward, especially Watchmen and thinking about V for Vendetta, several of those things that have stuck around and had staying power were very deliberately approached a variety of different philosophical questions, especially questions relating to government and freedom, questions relating to uh, what it means to be a person, and questions relating to you know how we relate to one another, especially questions of violence and redemptive violence in particular. I do want to say that Arrow plot that you just described is really just stolen from you know Frank Miller's Daredevil series. But- sure. <laughs> Daredevil is an interesting character, like, you know, because he's one of the few comic book characters who is overtly religious and wrestles with wrestles with these questions pretty regularly his catholicism features heavily especially in the tv show the netflix tv show Yeah, they really play that Mm -hmm. up so shannon i think there's just to your question in general like are people doing this intentionally i think they are reflecting on it intentionally i think there's no way they could have produced these kind of cinematic and comic book universes where they're reflecting on this by accident it is a product of our time like rusty said here's the thing i think they're doing on accident i think they're talking about jesus on accident like because sadly like i don't think the church has done a great job at saying like hey the gospel is such a powerful story that it just shows up like if we're if we're living life the right way like it's gonna look like jesus and so like the gospel appears in these stories and those of us who are trained to see it, see it. But most people are going to these movies that make hundreds of millions of dollars to watch shit blow up. Like, and that's just the truth. <laughs> so I want to kind of bring up the point that Shannon made at the beginning then, which is why don't the church, especially Christian churches and, and religious folks tend to really grapple with these questions or do they and we just don't see it i don't think we wrestle nearly enough with them as a matter of fact i think the church has benefited or tried to like use redemptive violence as a means of controlling people and the church has supported that more than it's spoken against it but that might have to be a whole where did the church lose its way episode well i i want to echo that and say in the 
aftermath of January 6th attack on the Capitol building, I've read articles, I mean, that was very clear, maybe not from the imagery coming out on that day, immediately out of the Capitol building from the first videos, but, but the imagery that's come out since and the defenses of what happened that day from those who were involved very heavily shot through with religious claims and you know we're doing this for jesus and god is at work in trump and and we're here to do god's work i mean a very very uh, clear message of that in in some of the the things that have been said and videos of the crowd with the religious and patriotic symbols smushed together and I think that, um, you know, like you says, probably six more podcasts, but uh, there's this, this whole thing that institutions, the purpose of institutions are to control things. And it always starts out for a positive reason, but it's so often infected with sin. And so, you know, sort of my working theory is that the church stumbles into um, being caught up in preserving the power and in the institution that develops and that that overshadows just teaching the gospel and that you, we get caught in this bind of, you know, I know I'm in it as a pastor preaching on a regular basis of how hard can I push and how much can I say about how the teaching of Jesus has been distorted because if I push too hard, then the people just won't come back. And then what have I accomplished except driving people out of the church. And, you know, and I feel that pang of guilt. Well, maybe that's because I was afraid to lose my salary. But honestly, I feel like an ongoing conversation is the right way. But sometimes I'm not sure. But in any case, it's that ongoing struggle to talk about difficult things and to tell people, you you know, we've really perverted the gospel and we've fallen away from following Jesus. So maybe then, therefore, it's only natural that the culture that's around the church, that's heard the church message, that's heard the story of the forgiving victim day after day for 2,000 years is maybe more open to hearing that story and wrestling with what it means because they don't have any institutional religious fights going on. They're just talking about the story. Whereas we are like talking about the story and maintaining institution at the same time, and those often are at odds. I don't know. It's hard for me because I grew up Baptist and uh, and I grew up Southern Baptist. But when I was, it was regular Southern Baptist. It was regular Southern Baptist when I was <laughs> a part of it, not not what it has become. And you know, so often, like I've, I was, I got into a Twitter conversation with this kid. Kid, he's an adult now, but this. You know, he was a kid when I was when I was in church with him and we got into this Twitter conversation about how all these people that taught us and who we were around when we were at church have turned into these sort of conspiracy theory spewing super duper hardliners. And so often what I have experienced and what I'm sure you all have experienced as well is it's no secret that, you know, in the Methodist church pastors tend to lean center left and congregations center right. But what I have tended to notice is that the people who so often are eager to point out when they feel that we are cherry picking, 
quote unquote, I'm using sarcastic air quotes, from scripture to defend a thing, when in reality, we are just sort of reading contextually and engaging the, you know, scripture and stuff. Those people are the first ones to cherry pick the one or two verses about defending a home or, you know, something like that and say, well, look, this is why, you know, I can defend the Iraq war, or this is why I can defend the death penalty or, or whatever. It's a much cleaner story for the movie to start with a hero and a villain and for the movie to end with a hero killing the villain and saying, look, good wins, evil's done. When in reality, it's, it's just much more complex than that. And I think a lot of people in our congregations and a lot of people outside our congregations, and honestly, me sometimes think that, well, if this problem were just, you know, if we would just, Batman would just kill the Joker, then everything would be better. When in reality, what happens when Batman kills the Joker? Well, Harley Quinn steps up and she becomes, you know, and then she starts causing problems. And then, you know, it never really solves anything. To your point too, Rusty, I can't help but think about how much of our cultural vernacular and the metaphors that we use are shot through with metaphors of violence and scarcity. Mm-hmm. And I think Sarah can speak to this in particular. She just did a lot uh, with metaphor in a class that she took. But, um, you know, it's it's really poignant and, and pointed to be able to look into various kinds of of cultural products, the things that were floating around when uh, scripture was being written, the things that were going on, the things that were going on during the formation of the um, various kinds of churches and denominations and things throughout history and the ways in which they've influenced the ways we express ourselves, because it is uh, possible to like look back and quote unquote cherry pick and pick out violent metaphors and say, here we go, this is my excuse. And, you know, we talked a little bit in our third or fourth episode about dealing with violence and violent metaphors in our religious spaces. But it goes, you know, to repeat kind of again and again that, that part of the challenge here is is grappling with our own culture and just the way we speak. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm actually I'm going to try to jump in here. Um, I didn't think I would be useful unless the um, Superman 2 movie with Christopher Reeves came up, which I've seen many times on VHS and could, you know, talk about the Christology of Superman and that for hours. But What's VHS? <laughs> what's VHS? Oh, my God. Shannon, these kids. Um, <laughs> hey, I, I still have VHS tapes. <laughs> um, y- yeah. So the misuse of violence metaphors in the Old Testament is is a rampant and people often see themselves as the Israelites when in fact we're more likely to be we're we're not oppressed people who are under another type of oppressive rule not these days I'm sorry for for anyone who feels persecuted um (laughs) sorry no that sounds bad I could talk about this for a long time. My brain's going like 20 different places. But yeah, you know, when the Israelites fantasized about committing violent acts towards their enemies, it was because they had seen those same violent acts perpetrated on their folks. And in a sense, they're kind of like revenge fantasy in a lot of ways. I don't know. (laughs) I've lost my train of thought. But the revenge fantasy 
really kind of stops at the fantasy all the time, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot about God not wanting it to go to that level, right? But there's a lot of honest, being honest with God about your frustration and like, I want to, you know, I want to bash the children's head against the rocks (laughs) of my enemies because I am that angry and upset by all this uh, persecution and, and violence that I'm experiencing. Um, it's it's a natural human thing to want to return violence for violence, but then we've got uh, God. It's true. Well, and and that, and how often have we like said things like, "God, I hate my mom so much," or you know, I just you know, I get to kill my sister or my brother or whatever. You know, I remember listening to one 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 of the episodes of the Robcast where he, you know, Rob Bell's thing, and he talks he talked about this you know this idea that a lot of those Old Testament cries for redemptive violence and justice and stuff are poetic, like, like you're saying, Sarah, they're poetic language. You know, it's, it's a writer in exile who's had everything stripped from them, you know, their land, their humanity, their family, everything saying what's left. Like I, you know, if I could just give a little bit back to those people of what they did to me, then then it'd be okay. When in reality, we're sitting here living in the United States in 2021, upset because a person said a thing on the internet. It's quite different, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I think so. Well, and so- I think it's the tendency to to take those passages to self-justify. That's a natural human tendency. It's like, I think that's the story of, uh, you know, the snake. God's holding out on us uh and not giving us you know god said we could have everything except this one thing it's probably the best thing and i want it too and you know and so um we we pull out the parts that allow us to self-justify man i honestly think that's why penal substitutionary atonement theory you know i couldn't go through without mentioning that right (laughs) uh that it's the most popular version of understanding jesus death because it's the one that authorizes me to be wrathful and hateful and extract violence as long as i can self-justify that the people i hate are the same ones that god hates you'll have to define penal substitutionary atonement for everyone. Okay. You know, the, the idea that, that what actually happens, why the cross is redemptive is because God really by nature must have satisfaction for sin and there must be punishment. There has to be retribution and God loves us. So God doesn't want to uh, wreak vengeance on us and destroy us. So Uh, He destroys his own son, knowing that he can take it, I guess. But so Jesus takes our whipping for us. The question is, where do we get the idea that God must exact blood payment for sin? And um, my theory is that it's that's us projecting onto God because that's our tendency. And so we like a theory that authorizes our anger and hate. And, you know, we can read Revelation and not notice that all these warnings of all this destruction and all this killing uh, are trumpeted, you know, seal after seal and trumpet after trumpet, you know, and this army will ride out and this army will ride out and this destruction will happen and this destruction will happen. Where's the description of destruction? Never happens in the book. In the end, the city comes down and uh, the only entity that's destroyed is actually the, the, the satanic 
uh, not the people. The people are not destroyed. The people all stream to the holy city in the end. The warning is a warning of self-destruction through hate and violence. And then God comes and disrupts and interrupts and ends all that. It's, uh, but you can cherry pick sections, you know, God warned this would happen. So I'm going to do it. But you can't write like an eight book series on that, <laughs> which I read like when I was a kid. It's never been done. Thank you for defining substitutionary as atonement, Shannon, because I can barely get through the word without trying to giggle at the dirty jokes that start to flow through my head whenever I try to say it. When we were actually talking about this this morning, some, I don't remember why, but part of it seems like people have a deep desire for understanding the world and making sense of the world. And for some reason, that idea that we just finished watching the hundred, so blood must have blood. Um, is Talk about a bummer of a show. Makes sense to people, and I was telling Rusty that I remember the first time I heard about incarnational atonement was in a class at Duke in a women's prison. Um, that was a a thing that they do. They've got a really amazing prison studies program, um, and Dr. Lauren Winner was giving lecture and was, she just said, you know, Jesus didn't come to die for your sin or to die for us. He came to live for us and we killed him for it. And that's a thing that kind of lives in on repeat in my head because all of a sudden the story changed and she talked about how we see redemption and salvation everywhere that Jesus goes, not just on the cross. We see Jesus bringing kingdom moments and redeeming every aspect of life from birth to death and beyond in the healing and in the miracles and in the inclusion of bringing the outsiders in and touching the untouchable. We see those kingdom moments before the cross. Um, the cross is part of it and you know death needed to be redeemed just like every other aspect of our living um, and so the whole story changed uh, that it's not just about jesus taking our place on the cross but jesus showing us a different way all along the way and that made me realize that i'd never really asked the question why all the times that i'd heard the sermons preached that you know jesus had to had to die to take the place for your sins or you know whatever way that it was being preached that day that I hadn't questioned that since I was a kid and I did question it when I was a kid I was like well why does this make sense that God would like decide to let his son die it was none of it made sense um, to my child brain but as I developed in this culture um, in hearing the the common Christian explanations that it then began to make sense until that one day that I was like, well, why? And I don't, I think asking that why is really hard for church people whenever it's really easy just to say, this is how it is. And it makes perfect sense. And don't ask too many questions because then the whole thread unravels. And I had theology with Dr. Willie Jennings, and I give him credit for most of my shaping, I think. But on our 
first day of class, he said, you know, your whole life, you've been looking through a window and in this class, that window is going to shatter and I'm going to be here to hold those pieces. But when we put you back together, you'll be a stained glass. Your, your theology is going to look much, much different, but it will be beautiful. And you know, he, he did that holding for us and it was gent- gentle and um, it was hard as we were reshaping the way we thought about the world and about God and who, who God is to us and who we are to one another. And that's really hard for normal day-to-day lay people to do because it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of commitment. And like Shannon said, it's easier just to leave and go to the church next door that's preaching what you want to hear. I actually had an entire sermon on why, like why we need nuance in our theology. Like, because mm-hmm. we want our theology to be so simple that we can say it in like one sentence about what we believe about any given thing. The problem is, is that when you start stringing those sentences together, you find a lot of contradictions that don't let you actually believe much of anything. Mm-hmm. Which uh. is to to circle back around in the comic book of it all. One of the reasons that a lot of people like like me like to pick on Zack Snyder is because of the lack of nuance, mm-hmm. right? Like only Zack Snyder can have a scene where Superman is wrestling with his personhood and stage Superman in a church speaking to a priest and frame him right in front of a stained glass window of Jesus in the garden and think that he's being deep. You're like, nope, we all got it, man. He's a Christ metaphor. He's wrestling with his fate. Like, we get it. And then like 10 minutes later, he's in space and falls out of, you know, whatever it is in the shape of the cross. Like, no, man, it's okay. Seriously, we get it. (laughs) Which is, and, and that nuance is why movie, you know, civil Captain America Civil War has its issues. But there's nuance in that, in that story, right? There's differing sides. You think it's about exacting violence and retribution and all this stuff and redemptive violence, but really it's this story about the effects of redemptive violence, right? The whole reason that Zemo starts this whole thing off is because he saw the Avengers destroy his city, thinking that they were doing this great thing, when in reality, you know, they just caused bigger problems. And then you've got the two sides, you know, the Iron Man and the Captain America sides. And honestly, I thought Captain America was kind of a tool, that whole movie, um, because he just was so single-minded and he wouldn't listen to anybody else. And that, you know, he had no sense of that nuance. In Brian looks like he's got opinions. I mean, he's just unwilling to be accountable. Uh, right. Like, yes, and- yeah. In any sense of the word, John disagrees. I can, and see it's that. also like that entire movie is basically just been like, yeah, it's nice you saved the world, but you wrecked my family, right? Which is different from like the comic run is very much it's kind of similar, you know, but it lacks that human set that that moment at the beginning where Tony Stark runs into Alfre Woodard, whoever whatever her character name is. It lacks that thing of here's the human component whereas in the comics it's just you know they um the new mutants accidentally destroy a building and i don't think you get to know who's in the building yeah i think that's one of the most powerful moments and it's like 
shaped as the moment that starts Tony's brain in a completely different direction, right? When that woman who he thinks is coming to be a fan is actually coming to call him out. Right. For her son's death. But it's not changing direction. It's reorienting towards his original direction. So he's having the recognition of the same one from the original Iron Man. Like what I am doing is actually furthering the problem. It's not solving Mm -hmm. a problem. You mean we have to be reminded over and over and over? (laughs) It it might be like the greatest argument for the lectionary. Um, We need the story of Jesus like every year for that exact reason. You know, just small things like that. But ultimately, I think we can see patterns, whether it's Marvel or DC. There's, There's different approaches to that. Some of them are a little bit more explicit than others in their like religious imagery or not. But I think we need to continue as, as a society in general, based upon, you know, just recent current events um, to wrestle with the fact that vengeance and violence are not things that are really intended for the, for humanity to do. That's not who we're supposed to be. Right. Mm -hmm. So, well, can I say, you know, let's not, I, again, because of my fascination with seeing this in the culture, I mean, I think you see it in a lot of other forms of art and literature. And I mean, look at Tolkien and look at uh, Harry Potter. You know, um, I think both of them did a really good job of there's no individual Christ figure. You might argue that Harry Potter is, but I don't think so. I think you have more a whole raft of people with power wrestling with what is the power for and how do I use it? And, and is power bent towards evil or is power bent towards selfishness is power bent towards love and openness and life for the whole community and, and people particularly in Lord of the Rings wrestling with, you know, why the most powerful characters won't take the ring into their own hand is because they know that they can't handle it. Right. Well, and you bring up Harry Potter and like so many things, like the books do a much better job of that than the movies because the movies have to reduce, have to reduce stuff down. And in the books, the final duel between Harry and Voldemort, it ends on like a technicality, right? Like it's not this big, like in the movie, there's like this huge duel and they're flying through the building and they're doing all this stuff and they're flinging their spells without saying them, which they've not established as a thing. But in the book, it's not about that. The uh, the book In the book, it's about denying Voldemort that duel. It's about sort of, you know, Voldemort is all about redemptive violence and he's about exacting revenge on those who have wronged him. And he's denied that. He's denied that final duel and he just, it just happens because, you know, the wand belonged to what's his face draco so guys this has been a really great conversation we've had a great time sarah i think successfully avoided any spoilers uh our dog is agreeing with everything that we've just said in the background we had her quiet for almost a whole podcast and i feel so so overjoyed and successful if only we could just oh man if only we could get her to be calm for a whole hour that is our goal of the year. You made it to 58 minutes today. So um, what's bringing you joy right now? 
everyone. Well, probably just probably Tansy. Yeah, we're on, we've been on family leave. It's been really nice. I've been in ministry for five years now and I needed this leave. I mean, it's been exhausting, but it has been nice to have a little bit of reprieve. My first three years in ministry, I was at a three point charge. So preaching three times a Sunday for three years and then moving to a station church where I preach every Sunday. I just, I needed a little bit of a a break to refresh, I think. And it's interesting to think of sleepless nights as a refreshing session, but it has been just learning to be a mom and um, getting to spend time at home with my family. Very cool. All right, Rusty, you wanna go next or you wanna? Yeah, I won't take the same, I mean, obviously, Obviously, the baby brings brings me joy as well. But all the you know, we've we've realized that, or at least for the first while, um, we just sort of existed in between feedings and diaper changes. And so, in that existence, I've been getting a lot of joy out of well, one finding new things to watch and just sort of figuring out uh, time management has never been a strong suit of mine, and so. It's sort of interesting to and been kind of fun to kind of go, okay, well, how can uh, how can we organize our time a little bit better? And honestly, I don't feel as tired as I thought I would. I mean, knock on wood, mm-hmm. but she's also a really good sleeper, as evidence from this podcast. True. But uh WandaVision bring me a lot of joy. Fun ride. We haven't started it yet. Oh, third episode tonight. Watched it this morning. Wait, wait. Oh. They're releasing it weekly. This is why Disney Plus is a problematic service. If they can't drop it all, all at once, I just don't even want to associate with them. Oh, now come on. Come on, Nail. Don't start another battle. I saw an article that showed the, the watching of companies that drop it all at once versus those who drop it one at a time. And in the end, the same number of people watch it over the same amount of time. It's true. The one's just front-loaded. Wait, but John, you never answered the question, who's your Batman? Oh, I was just trying to start controversy. <laughs> you didn't care. I have, I have much stronger feelings about the voice of the Joker, and Mark Hamill will forever be my Joker. Oh, yeah, obviously. So, yeah, let me give my joy. I've been sick for a week, eight days. I've had two swabs shoved into my sinuses and a third one coming. And so the moments of joy are little pieces. And uh, Anthony Fauci on the um, press conference yesterday was brought me a lot of joy. Uh, WandaVision, the inauguration uh, ceremony itself, Zooming with friends, taking time to be when you're sick to like make some phone calls and talk to people that hadn't talked to in a long time. Little specks of joy here in the middle of being feeling terrible. Uh, Shannon, you might be the most active person I've ever met in my entire life. <laughs> so it's it, I've never seen you sit still for that long. So I know this has got to be tough for you. Yeah. Oh, joy. Just looking around the room for things. Lamp. Lamp brings me joy. Anything for inspiration. I love lamp. <laughs> so to give you some time to think, Sarah, what is bringing me joy speaking of redemptive violence is that i almost broke my brother's nose yesterday it's not joy for me (laughs) and let me explain uh harris and i had planned to get together and do some work on my grandmother's old house since we've both been nicely quarantined 
And after we had finished all the like work stuff for the day, he pulled a pair of saber trainers out of his car and asked if we could fence without pads. He didn't have the pads with him, just the saber trainers. Uh, he's been researching Civil War era manuals, officers' manuals, and the uh, fencing styles that were prominent in America at that time. And as y'all know, I'm a big kendo person, so we got you to just kind of... beat your brother across the face, didn't you? <laughs> well, if he hadn't leaned into it, <laughs> sorry, so... I just laughed at violence. My bad. <laughs> yes, yes. So the, so the head violence—it's always their fault. So the the head was off limits and I had done what in kendo we call a a suryagi motion, which involves um, parrying and attacking at the same time by hitting the side of their sword with your sword and interrupting their cut. Anyways, as I was coming forward to hit him in the chest, he leaned forward and down with his head and I just watched in horror as the sword intercepted his face and his glasses and honestly i thought i was gonna have to take him to the emergency room for about 10 seconds and i felt really bad but the joy and entertainment of that whole like five to ten minute period where we got defense definitely trumps the brief five seconds of horror where i wondered if that blood would stop i feel like i like every time i talk to you i feel like i'm just like not an interesting person because my hobbies are like Trying a new cake recipe. So, no, John, I think this is the first time Kendo has come up on the podcast. I think. I've talked about it as like my hobby, but you're right. Because of COVID, especially since we started during this, this during COVID, I haven't been doing really any Kendo except outside in my backyard looking real awkward with <laughs> uh, training a super heavy training sword. So like, you know, there hasn't been a lot of chances to get out and actually fence with people and compete, but maybe this summer fingers crossed. Yeah. So what's giving me joy right now, uh, just giving Sarah a little bit more time (laughs) is I've been leading a Bible study on Genesis with some of my folks. And I have some folks in my congregation who uh, had an abusive pastor in their past who taught them some absolutely ludicrous theology. And so it's really good to kind of see the deprogramming happen. So I shouldn't joke about you leading your parishioners to young earth creationism. Uh, well, we are seriously trying to deprogram some of that. So to be clear, your joy is that you're a great pastor. (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't believe. No, my joy is that. Pretty much every Thursday, we have Bible study Wednesday night. Almost every Thursday, I get a text message from someone just being like, thank you. Like, Mm. for just teaching them normal ass shit. Like, (laughs) (laughs) that's great. Well, you see, look, I'm living from moment to moment of joy in the middle of being sick, and you just gave me another one. That's awesome. Yeah. My joy is Brian's Bible study, too. It was pretty delightful yesterday. I was just in the house and I looked out. I had no idea that anything was happening. And I just, I was on the phone with my friend and I said, huh, my husband is fighting his brother with swords. I just looked out the window. I don't know why, where these swords came from, or what's happening. And and then Harris was bleeding. And then we played video games. Well, here's one more. Here's one more that you can edit this out if you want. But um, you, I'll invite people to go and watch... Uh, last night's episode of uh, 
Stephen uh, Colbert as he's uh, joyfully inviting uh, all the disillusioned Q people to join into regular nerddom of Tolkien and, and all those other things. Like, come join us. We already research inane topics and spend all our time obsessing about it. And, and it doesn't lead to violence. So just in case it wasn't already obvious in our last 15 episodes, uh, we do love science on this podcast <laughs> and reality. So welcome, welcome, join us. Yeah, this has been a delight. Yeah, thank you guys so much for coming on. Uh, we're going to have to do another roundtable like this again sometime soon. Maybe once Sarah actually finishes the Harry Potter books. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, listen, I, this is definitely not for the podcast, but just so I have a friend that um that literally wrote papers between the sixth and seventh book saying, you know, we're having a moment here. There's potential that that Rowling will seize the gospel and there's potential that she'll throw it all in the trash with redemptive violence in the end. And is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? So we are all already like waiting for the seventh book, hoping that she wasn't gonna result. Oh, come on, you haven't seen the movies? No, no she hasn't seen the movies. She's been reading the books. You didn't hear what we like talked about years. early today? Did you run out of the room? She anyway. closed her ears. Did you not see her and just like? No, no, okay, Here's well. a real recommendation. Jim Dale does a fantastic oh. reading of the entire series. And actually, when I come down to visit y'all, I listen to it on my drive. And it is so fantastic. good. You will love it. Yeah, I can third that. What's that? You confirm that? I can third that. Third that, yeah. I mean, Same. I can't get mad at people for Harry Potter spoilers because it's been out for, what, like 20, 30 years? <laughs> yeah, what kind of millennial are you? I'm an elder millennial. <laughs> yep. I think I've listened to the Jim Dale complete series from beginning to end, him reading all seven books, probably six or seven times. Well, on that note, thank you guys so much for joining us. Y'all at home, thank you so much for listening to Logosish. Please like, subscribe, share, and just generally check out all of the content that we've put out. We love finding and inventing new ideas for episodes. You're welcome to email us. We have a website now, guys. Can you believe it? A actual real-life website at logosish.com, and we're starting to do some writing for that on our blog. Our, we're going to start inviting guests to do some writing as well. So just continue to check out this stuff. We're trying to grow. We're trying to share this with whoever we can. And we really love having you guys along for the ride. So thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful week. Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logosish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and other social media at logosishpod. 
please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast so that we can get the word out about all the cool stuff that we're working on. And we'd love to hear your feedback as well. Have a great week.